So welcome to this year's Waterside Chat. Now this is all about the future of water in 2051. Now we're gonna spend the next 45 minutes with three leading water experts. They've been asked to think beyond the typical time horizons and conventional predictions of change. Instead, they've been brought here today to really discuss and explore what may look vastly different or surprisingly the same in three decades from now. The ways technology could drive the transformation, possibilities for the reinvention of infrastructure and systems, and how other factors in society will certainly influence the future of water. Now, the panelists will talk about potential obstacles to change as well, and how to accelerate progress, and the need to leverage today's increased attention and investment in water for long-term benefits. They have, however, asked me that you do not contact them in 30 years to hold them to claims they make in today's conversation. But, you know, why don't you just set a calendar reminder anyway? It just might gotta be fun to check in in 30. But seriously, we are gonna ask these folks to pull out their crystal balls, toss around big, bold ideas, and have some fun speculating about water in 2051. Now, to bring out our panelists, first we've got Albert Cho. Al is the Senior Vice President, Chief Strategy and Digital Officer at Xylem. In his role, he's responsible for driving Xylem's efforts to digitize the water structure and infrastructure, as well as the continued development of strategies to achieve our vision and create both social and economic values. Now, Al serves on the Board of Directors in the U.S. Water Alliance and the Canadian Water Network and sits on the program committee for Singapore International Water Week. He is also an honorary research associate of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at Oxford. That is, of course, the very esteemed University of Oxford, where he also was a Rhodes Scholar. Please welcome Al to the stage. Al. Welcome. Thank you so much. Excellent, Al. Thanks for being with us. Next up, I want to bring out Amy Corvu. Amy is the Vice President and Director of Digital Solutions at CDM Smith. With over 24 years of experience working with water, wastewater, and electric utilities as a digital strategist. Now, she is leading CDM Smith's digital venture, translating digital strategy, innovation, and emerging technology into high value products and services for CDM Smith's water, transportation, environmental, and infrastructure clients. Please give Amy a warm welcome. Amy, welcome, Amy. Thank you. We're going to have a good time. And our third panelist is Dr. Jason He. Now, Jason is a professor of environmental engineering and the director of Center for Water Innovation at Washington University in St. Louis. Prior to that, he was a professor and associate professor at Virginia Tech and an assistant professor at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. His research focuses on technological solutions for resource recovery from wastes 
wastewater. Now, Jason is also the editor-in-chief for Water Environment Research. Please welcome Jason. Thank you. I think that music was really, we're glad you all came. Thank you so much for being here. How does it feel to be predicting water 30 years in the future? No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. no, no pressure, no pressure at all. You know, but this is exactly what we want to do. We want to envision the water um, industry 30 years from now. And I think to really kick off, want to talk about what it's going to look like, the, the differences, uh, what, what might be the same. So I want to ask, how is it going to look different from today? And Amy, not to put pressure on, but I'm going to, I'm going to start with you right in the middle. Sure. So, so I think it's really amazing to look to the past to predict the future. And my grandmother is going to be 99 in a couple of weeks. God oh, bless her. Amen. And, and when I think about, yeah, that's like, it's amazing, right? And so when I think about what she's seen in her lifetime, you know, to go from early model cars that, you know, barely function to like autonomous vehicles, right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, the early cameras to some of the favorite activities my kids have with her playing with their digital camera and the, you know, the virtual reality filters and how she's so amazed her face can change and look different. It's just such an amazing experience and, and spectrum of, of what she's seen. Um, and I, I really think one of the things that I think might surprise us in, in several years is over her lifespan, certainly over ours, we've seen technology advance at a really rapid pace. Mm -hmm. the, but what, what I think was so profound and really impacted things was the space race, mm -hmm. right? And all the technology that was born out of that program, and certainly even some water-based technologies, you know, harken their origins to then. And so now when we see the privatization of space and what that's doing, I mean, mm -hmm. Elon Musk, it certainly helps when you have billions of dollars to yes, support it, it <laughs> right? But he's planning to colonize Mars mm. by 2050. And so really, how would we do that? And we'd really have to have some real self-sustaining water supplies. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm hopeful that we'll also reap some of those benefits and see, see look to the space age and, and what those new technologies are that are coming to really drive and, and impact change for us as an industry mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, very different. What do you think, Al? Well, I'm going to make a really big, bold prediction and say in 2051, we'll have WefTech without masks. Really so. <laughs> WefTech without <laughs> masks. Yay. Yes. And just before getting started, I mean, thank you, obviously, to you and to our panelists and WEF for organizing this discussion. Um, it's really important because we're making the decisions today that will shape water in 2051. And I think the obvious thing I would say is, you know, 2051, I don't know. But I think there are some things that we can say um, based on the things we see today. A friend of mine, um, Amy Webb, she's a futurist, likes to say that if you're trying to unpack the future, think about what are the principal axes along which change could evolve. And for me, um, those are uh, largely around climate and climate change and our institutional agility. Because those things drive demographic and institutional decisions that shape our future. I moved about a year ago to Woodstock, Virginia, uh, which is a small town outside of Washington, DC. I haven't really been back to DC at all, really, in the last year and a half. I'm guessing some of you probably know people who did the same thing. During this great pandemic of the last 18 months, there's been a massive shift in how people think about where they want to live, where they want to spend time. And guess what? As infrastructure planners and operators, those are the kinds of exogenous demographic and social decisions that shape our budgets, 
our plans, our ability to meet the commitments we have to our community. And so when I look out into 2051, um, I'm going to be, hopefully, um, on one of the future questions that Lisa's going to ask us, ask you to do a little homework with me. Um, so if you have a piece of paper and a pen, uh, pull that out now, because I want you to start thinking about what axes are going to shape your future. Mine are the degree to which we're able to reduce emissions and the degree to which we're able to create institutional agility. And those dimensions will map out a different space for 2051 that could look really good or really bad. Yeah, agility is a word that we've heard come up a lot in the conversation here at WefTech, uh, especially as it relates to innovation in so many ways. Um, Jason. Well, I think Amy talked about space and Elle talked about innovation. There's a, one key factor here is talent, right? You, talent. Need, you need the talent to support the success of this. Mm -hmm. That's how we as a professor in academic world can help, can support. So. So I think academic world is slightly different from practical side, but we have a strong connection because we send people, we send students. So I think in 30 years, what's going to be different? Now think about uh, when your kids choose a major now in college engineer, you're not probably going to, not going to choose environmental or water as your top option. You're probably going to think about computer science. Mm -hmm. So my vision in 30 years, okay, so water, environmental, engineering major, going to be as hot as computer science. No, I withdraw that going to be hotter than computer <laughs> wow. so, so the kids are going to choose that as, uh, as their top option. Right? So we can really get a lot, a lot, really pipeline of the talents and to help realize those things. That's incredible. I, th I, think you, I think those are three bold predictions based on you know, your knowledge and, and the evolution that we've seen. And I like how you look to the past to really look to the future. I think that's important for everyone. Um, now we want to talk about what might be the same that surprises people. Uh, Jason, you, you talked about what would be different, especially in the world of academia. What about the same? Well, I guess uh, what, what's going to the same is uh, many of us probably gonna still get the drinking water from same drinking water treatment plant, and we're still gonna send the wastewater to the same wastewater treatment plant. Although there's gonna be difference, right? But, but the physical location for many infrastructure is already there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Al, what do you think about from like the tech side? I think that's exactly right. I mean, um, one of the things that might surprise people, not people in this room maybe, but in the broader community, is that in 2051, a lot of the infrastructure that we'll have then is stuff that we still have today. Um, a lot of the advances that we're seeing in asset management, particularly data-driven asset mm -hmm. management, are enabling people to extend the life of buried infrastructure, for example, well beyond what the planned useful life was for those assets. And so we're starting to see more and more work around proactive asset management, around condition-based asset management, risk-based asset management. And that means in 2051, a lot of what we may need um, will be around. The difference will be that there may be more stranded assets. And when I think back to where I live in Woodstock, there are a lot of train lines that run through the city that never get used anymore. There's still railroad signs that say railroad crossing, but the social and economic factors that drove there to be railroads there in the first place have changed. There are no more quarries that are active in the area. Agricultural markets have shifted. Patterns of trade and inhabitation have shifted away from the Shenandoah Valley to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And so some of the assets that we built in the past, because of macro factors that can evolve over the span of years, if not decades, will potentially leave us with stranded assets that we're still going to have to support. Interesting, and when it comes to assets, I mean, Amy, you, you deal with infrastructure on a daily basis and the strategy. Uh, do you agree that, that these assets will, so, you know, the, the lines will move, but the basic infrastructure would I, remain I, in some focus? I, I, I hope we experience something different, not that I, I 
totally disagree. For certain, you know, asset management will certainly extend the life cycle of our assets, and I'm a technophile at heart, so I really <laughs> hope real-time data information helps, uh, helps our member communities, our utilities, uh, transform into more proactive maintenance and, and really ensuring those assets. But, but I also hope that we think outside the box. We start to look at other ways to bring more connected uh, solutions to other environments and other communities. And you know, distributed infrastructure, I do think, provides us an opportunity to see that you know, perhaps we'll start to see, just like we've seen a lot of folks leave, uh, leave their cities and move to, uh, to, more, to more rural areas or, or suburban areas, I hope that we can find ways to distribute our infrastructure in a different way. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not so centralized, and the energy in industry is certainly looking towards that. I think there's a lot of, of benefit, certainly from a greenhouse gas emission as well as socioeconomic mm -hmm. factors to contend. So, so I hope we do actually shift more. You know, it's, it's interesting because then you're looking at the economic investment, you know, and, and where does that private public sector come in? And we're going to get to that. Um, but I want to uh, go next to the drivers of change. You know, in the next 30 years, what will be the drivers for change so that infrastructure could expand? You know, is it all economic? What are the other, other drivers? Um, Amy, why don't you continue on? So, you know, I think, um, again, looking to the past, my, my grandmother has seen a lot of change, um, but she's also, and a lot of great change, but also in that nearly 100 years, you know, we've seen global water demand increase sixfold, right? Sixfold, and, six. Um, and, and then we've seen, you know, our wetlands and, and forest, uh, forest, you know, disappear, two-thirds of it, I think, over her lifespan. So I, I really feel like a lot of the factors are really going to be you know, all about preserving our earth and the impact of climate change and really reversing some of those, those patterns and recognizing it's one, one water. Like it's, you know, mm -hmm. we have such a small amount of, of fresh water to work with and that full life cycle uh, you know, associated with it. I, I hope there's recognition that we have to preserve and protect it and, and that those, um, those impacts will, will really drive us towards change. I hope it's certainly not at a pandemic scale like mm -hmm. we've all seen, but you know, there's, there's something to that and the rapid innovation at scale, you know, something like this has, ha, you know, the pandemic has forced us into. I hope we just heed that warning early, early enough. How do you, just staying on that for a moment, how do you see and, and both of you chime in as well, uh, Alan, Jason. How do you see driving that message? How will that get through? Because like you stated in your grandmother's lifetime, we've seen, you know, sixfold in that, two thirds of the forest disappear. How do we get the urgency of now into the vernacular when it comes to water? I guess education, right? Education, there's education on the campus. There's education off the campus. So when, when I teach class the first day, I, I like to ask one question to students. How often do you change to replace your cell phone? How often do you change to replace your laptop? Uh -huh. So every time you replace, that means you generate waste, you demand the new resource. That's all associated with wastewater generation, waste uh, uh, production. Mm -hmm. So this is really relevant to everyone. Yeah. Right? It's not, uh, we talk about a big picture, but a lot of times it's down to the individual responsibility. So I hope students understand and say, oh yeah, I just changed iPhone 6, now iPhone 16, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that means a lot of wastewater is produced. So, Interesting. Yeah. That's a, that, I think that's a very effective driver. I Al? love what, um, what our, my fellow panelists are saying. I think a lot of it is about painting the picture. 
you know, a, a bunch of financial services firms did a study that said that if you took pictures of people and aged them 30 years, and mm -hmm. people had to look at themselves in 30 years and see how their face was going to change, they would actually save more because they would see that the, the self in 30 years is mm -hmm. potentially a little less vital, um, a little bit slower, um, and you know, wants to be secure and safe, and so they save more money. So let's think about what the picture for 2051 could look like with yeah. a clearer picture. And so that exercise I was t talking to you about, if you have a piece of paper, pull it out. If not, just follow kind of this mental image for a moment. So draw a two by two matrix, right? You are, many of you are engineers. This is going to be really simple <laughs> for you. The left hand of the matrix, right, the, the left two quadrants um, at the bottom is a greater than 1.5 degree C, a degree of emissions, right? Mm -hmm. And the right-hand side of the page is a less than 1.5 uh, degree emissions pathway. The top half of the page, so the top two quadrants, are a high degree of institutional agility, and the bottom half, a low degree of institutional agility. Those two dimensions map out four different features for the world. So let's start in a world where we manage to get to a 1.5 degree or less emissions pathway on the right-hand side. If we have a low degree of institutional agility, by which I mean the ability of our political, social, and economic institutions to adapt themselves to new circumstances, and we're in that world, we're pretty much in the status quo. It's a manageable amount of climatic change, and you know, we kind of live in an institutionally rigid world. And so we're going to continue to struggle with the same challenges that we have today, affordability, resilience, equity. All of these challenges that you're talking about in different panels here at WefTech, that's the world we're going to be in. Now assume that we have a higher degree of institutional agility. That's what it takes to get to achieving the sustainable development goals, right? Mm -hmm. A pathway that's constrained to a manageable amount of climate change and the degree of institutional agility it requires to drive better outcomes. And I say the SDGs for that 2051 scenario because the Stockholm Environmental Institute tells us right now that we're pretty much off track to meet all of them, right, for <laughs> 2030. So the hope is let's get there in 2050. Now let's look at the left-hand left, left hand side of the page. You're talking about a degree of emissions that will result in a greater than 1.5 degree C pathway. On the left-hand side, let's assume that you're at a high degree of institutional agility. We have institutions that are working well, reconfiguring themselves, policy and regulation to a much more rapidly changing world. I call that a world of managed retreat. It's one where social and demographic changes are creating disruptions and dislocations that we may not know how to manage today. But the hope is that our institutions will get us there and we'll be able to manage the reallocation of people, places, and resources. And the point I want to underscore here is that it doesn't take the 2 billion people that are projected to be climate refugees around the world in 2051 on that pathway to cause significant challenges. It can happen just like it did last year, where people with resources move when they're no longer comfortable where they are, where they're tired of forest fires and all of the people with means and resources leave a community and move to somewhere safer. And what's left is a community that lacks the resources economically and socially to manage significant disruptive change. That's a really big issue, socially yeah. and politically. And that leaves you with the last quadrant, which is one where we have a high degree of change and low institutional agility and capacity to manage that change. And that's a really difficult world. What I want to leave you with is your projection of probabilities. 
So if you look at that x-axis between 1.5 and non-1.5, the, the scientists today say that there's an 80% chance that we're not going to be on that 1.5 or less pathway. So put 80% there and 20% on that other pathway. On the y-axis, share with us your perception of institutional agility. And just for the sake of argument, let's say that we believe that our institutions are 80% likely not to be more agile than they are today and 20% likely to be agile enough to deal with significant and disruptive change. And you're all engineers, so let's do the math. There is about a 4% chance with that math that we're going to be in a world that we can achieve the SDGs. Mm -hmm. There's about a 16% chance that we're going to be in a world of the status quo. There's about, that's one in six. There's another one in six chance that we're going to be in a world of managed retreat. And there's a 64% chance that we're going to be in a world of hurt. Mm. That's the pathway that we could be on. And that's the pathway when you think about 2051, that we need to think about both how we change the likelihood that we're going to be on a sustainable emissions pathway, and we also need to work on that institutional agility to change the math and start to move to a world where we think we can achieve the SDGs. That disruptive change, is that what you would you know, really mark as the big driver to change in the next 30 years? Personally, I do, and then I'll shut up, because yeah. I want to hear what our fellow panelists say. But you know, the SDG construct assumes mm -hmm. that we're trying to close a gap that's static, right? that we yeah. can take the 2 billion people who don't have sanitation today, and that you know, by working really hard, we'll reduce that number. Mm -hmm. But what if there are people today who have things that in 30 years they don't? Yeah. I really like your analysis of, of looking at a picture of yourself 30 years from now. We've seen that like in the office of a, of a dermatologist trying to get you to wear sunscreen. You know, and it's, and it's, it's revelation and, it, and it, it's nearly frightening, but it can act change. What about, you, what about you, Jason, as far as like really, you know, what would be the driver of change in 30 years? Do you think it's down to the student and the individual or well, other factors? Well, I, I think we look at um, both existing problem, not really problem people, right? So we have. And we also need to look at what's going to happen in 30 years. Population going to increase by what? To 9 to 10 billion people. So that's just reality. We're going to have more people, and, and people want to have a similar life standards. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the human right. So that's all come with the consumption of the resource. You know, Al, I wanted to um, maybe have you remunerate further. But the other question we had is, how will other factors in society infrastructure and technology influence the future of water. Who wants to take that? We'll, we'll go around to all of you. Amy, you first. Well, like I said, I, I do, uh, I, I, I'm so fortunate to have been born in a digital era age, mm -hmm. right? Because I do feel like technology is one way to help. Um, we've certainly seen it raise awareness. I'm hoping, you know, the connectedness we've all been able to sustain over these past 20, Last months, even though we physically weren't connected, mm -hmm. that that connectedness will will transcend and help us solve some of these solutions. You know, we're leveraging 5G and the ability to get more people connected, and and we certainly need that because that you know that last question out, great scenario, and Jason, great point about down to the individual. I feel it does. We do need to be impacted at the individual to really push and and promote that change and. And you know, with the projections on the world population, about 10 billion or so, 
yeah. almost half will be in a water scarcity scenario. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's half of the world's population that's going to, to feel physically the pains of not having access to, to potable water. And so I, I think you know, we want to turn to advances in technology, and again, I, I point to space, but you know, satellite, 5G, like all of the capabilities to promote that connectedness and awareness. I, mm. I think that's, that's where it really starts. And then implementing that so we're able to preserve the infrastructure, leverage uh, what's happening in one part of the world with another. You talked a lot about networking at the yeah. keynote. We can network across the globe now, right? Mm -hmm. And I think technology will only continue to do that and, and enable that transfer of knowledge that I really think is going to be important to preserving our, our resources over time. Yeah, what do you think, Jason? Well, last week I took my students to a, a tour. You know, as students, they like to see something outside the classroom. So <laughs> we went to Anheish Bush. Uh, we come from yeah. St. Louis, so that's where sure. Anheish Bush is. So uh, we, we visit their NLB digester. They have six reactors, but only two of them are operating, running. So students ask, why, why you build six, only running two? So um, the Ahasperger said, we initially build six because we need six. Then we renovate technology, upgrade technology, we reduce the wastewater production. So now we only need two. We don't really need that four. So you can see that's only like 10 to 15 years. So the technology advancement really reduced the wastewater discharge. Although you may ask, what are you going to do with that four reactor sitting right. there? Right? So that's a waste of investment. But from big picture, that's water saved. And we did talk about what they're going to do with that four reactor, because they're in the downtown St. Louis. There might be food waste mm -hmm. that could be due to cold digestion. But that's really a really strong testimony of the technology impact uh, yes. on, on water. Yeah. Very much. All I got to say is I, I wish I'd taken more classes like that. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I, maybe we can talk uh, after and I can go do an internship or something. But it's, um, <laughs> uh, you know, if I think about some of the social changes that um, are likely to create new options and opportunities for us over the next couple of decades, um, I try to boil down things into something simple enough for me to understand. And so four Ds are what I have in mind. And the first is exactly what uh, Jason was mentioning before, which is discipline, um, which is that it's really cool that we have a space race, but how much cooler would it be to have an Earth race, right, around yeah. some of the technologies that we really need to decarbonize and circularize the, the, the sectors that we work in? And so I think an increasing interdisciplinarity of how we approach um, engineering uh, how we approach policymaking um, will be really important. And there's a lot of really good thinking about how important it is for people like WEF to play that role as integrators of knowledge and to really up the game of how we inspire people, young people in our country, to think not just about linear infrastructure, but about um, infrastructure in a really multidimensional way. The second, I think, is um, going to have to be around defragmentation. And what I mean by defragmentation isn't just the consolidation, for example, of the water sector in the United States. It's about uh, the, the increasing vertical and horizontal coordination at a regional level around infrastructure. Because there are so many smaller organizations, uh, people probably shouldn't go it alone over the course of the next 30 years if we want to get to a place of resilient infrastructure. That doesn't mean being taken over. It doesn't mean mashing things together. But it does mean a much deeper and richer form of institutional coordination, both across geographies, but also across stacks of infrastructure. 
Uh, I think a third will probably be around decentralization, mm. um, which is if you think about the future changes that are potentially likely to happen, both in terms of the hard changes of sea level rise and increasing um, extreme weather events and droughts, but also the soft changes that that will inspire in terms of potential demographic moves and shifts that will move populations around the world and the country, it's going to become more important for infrastructure to be less long-lasting and less brittle um, and more flexible and adaptive. And so decentralization and lowering the kind of unit size of infrastructure choices that we're making will be important to modularize how we envision our future. And the fourth is digitalization. And that's important because so much of what we're confronting is uncertainty. And human beings struggle with uncertainty, but computers are pretty good at actually modeling a range of potential outcomes and helping us see the potential future pictures of ourselves in a way that we can't ourselves. So imagine the ability, and you know, a lot of the tech firms right now are talking about doing exactly this, the ability to ingest massive amounts of environmental information from remote sensing information that's getting increasingly real time to hydrological in situ information, fusing it with models with artificial intelligence. I think Microsoft calls it their planetary computer. Google has their Earth engine. A lot of startups have really, really cool ways of modeling multidimensional mm -hmm. um, evolutions of natural systems. And that's going to help us understand what the potential range of future outcomes are. And all of that's interesting, but what it helps us do is make better decisions, because it helps us contain uncertainty in a way that allows us to focus resources where they're most needed. And so I think the digitalization of the water industry, writ large at the level of water resources, all the way down to water infrastructure so we can optimize it at various scales, will be a really important adaptive tool for us to confront more variable um, future conditions. I like that, contain uncertainty. Um, so we've talked about drivers of, of change. We've talked about what may be same or different. I really want to talk about the optimistic benefits of changes to the water sector that you can see and that you hope for over the next 30 years. How about Amy? You want to start with that one? We're all here because we're really passionate about water and preserving, uh, preserving our resources, preserving the earth, right? And, and so I really hope in the future that awareness is there and there's a, a much bigger, broader appreciation mm -hmm. and, and recognition for how critical water is and all the, the amazing work everybody here does and, and that we'll continue to do in the future, right? That we can really tap into that energy and passion and, and, uh, and really solve some very important critical issues that are, are gonna impact future generations. So uh, I'm really excited about that aspect of it mm -hmm. and I feel that you know the human spirit is just so powerful and, uh, and when faced with the change and, and we've gotta focus we've really got to put emphasis and focus back on what we can all accomplish together. So mm -hmm. I'm excited about that. Well, it's my first time at, at, at a WEF organizational event here at WEF Tech 2021. And I can tell you by the people that I've met just in the hallways and the elevators and, and, and in the food court or on the expo floor and through the WEF Tech live chats and, and hearing all the feedback from all of everybody online, it's really been insightful to the passion of everybody here in the audiences and stages and in the learning situations, that it's as if, you know, WEF, you know, has the power uh, to empower all the other sectors related to and within the water industry. I mean, what do you see as like some of the greatest benefits in the next 30 years, Jason, especially as you look out into the eyes of your students? Yeah, so I think this 
their wealth can play a really important role. I think many of you probably remember the time, I don't know how many years ago, so the academia really worked closely with practical. Then in the water business, then they start to work a little bit apart because of various reasons. Now we want to get back. Because I'm an engineering professor. I always try to differentiate this from a science professor. So I always <laughs> tell myself, I'm an engineering professor. OK, so although I'm a professor, engineering professor, we need to do something that have um, a strong tie with reality. So those changes, new technologies, new demand, new need can really impact academia. So we want, to, we want to train students to be a next generation scientist and engineer. And we need new topics to stimulate those young faculty yeah. to do applied water research, water wastewater research. I know we have all kinds of fancy ideas in our minds, but again, eventually I'm an engineering professor. I, I want to talk with engineer and understand what's the, what's the problem that can guide my research. For instance, this uh, machine learning, which started this. That's really driving me really interesting. So we, we, we want this type of question and, and, and support and, and from the practical side. Yeah. That's gonna really impact the academic world. And Al, I mean, I interviewed somebody from Xylem yesterday, and it was all about innovation mm -hmm. and how innovation from not just, you know, the, innovation from a value change perspective that always starts with the customer. Absolutely. Does that come to mind when you think about the benefits in the next 30 years, how you can better serve that customer, react to their needs in different ways? Very much so. I think um, you know, innovation isn't just about smarter widgets. It's about changing how we think about what we do. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most interesting things, when you just think about the broader context we've been discussing today, is that the water sector is changing how we think about what we do from being an engineering discipline or being a public health discipline to being an institutional discipline. You know, if I think about the work that WEF has done or the US Water Alliance or the Canadian Water Network or any of the other organizations that I've been privileged to be associated with, what I've sensed is a shift in how we even talk about kind of what it is that water's all about. In the Water Alliance, it's been about one water. And they've brought together an incredible range of different stakeholders to grapple with a zero emissions pathway for the US water sector writ large. The Canadian Water Network is thinking about how is our role as stewards, not just of water, but as social stakeholders, helping our communities achieve the future they want through water, right? And WEF has been a real lead in looking at areas like inclusion and equity and diversity in the water sector and bringing the kinds of talents and perspectives into our industry that are so critical to be adaptive in the future. And so I think some of the things that I see as great benefits here yeah. is a shift in how we even conceive about our field of play, that it's not just about building the next great widget. It's actually about enabling systemic change to adapt to the future needs of our water stakeholders. So. Yeah, it's interesting you know, we talk about change as you just ended on that note. I really want to ask too, what are the obstacles of change? We see where WEF can bring to the table so many bridges and, 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 and pathways to the change, but what are the obstacles that you see of the change in the next 30 years? Amy? So it's human nature to resist change. We're creatures <laughs> of habit, you know? And so- It's always I, been done this way. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's working fine for me now. Right, yeah. right. And, and you know, it 
have it, it's comfortable. It's, a, it's, you know, and as you mentioned, Al, right, we, we don't like uncertainty, and so there's comfort in, in having that habit. Um, and so I, I think we've got to force ourselves to be uncomfortable. We've got to, you know, we, it, it's no longer nice to, a nice to have, it's, a, it's an absolute must, right? Yeah. And so I think, again, trying to promote awareness, um, inclusion, you know, bringing in different perspectives. I love that you brought up several different alliances and organizations and we, you know, breaking down the barriers and silos is one way to start doing that because I, you know, we are all working for the greater good, the greater pres preservation of earth and our resources and, and what's available to us. And, and we're all secure, trying to secure at least the, the small amount of funding and, and mm -hmm. allocation that goes towards preserving our infrastructure. And so really trying to promote that, that unity, that alliance, that, that recognition that um, it's going to take a lot of uh, education, awareness, repeat, you know, mm -hmm. on, on communicating change, why change, what to change, because again, it's just human nature to fall back to, uh, to our old habits. But I, I think those are gonna be the biggest obstacles. I, I don't think it's gonna be technology. I don't think it's going to be, you know, um, know-how. I think, you know, again, we've got such great innovation and capabilities, uh, and we've got such passionate you know, students coming up and, 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 and experienced professionals to work side by side. I think it's just going to take that, that alliance and, and inclusion. It's a very interesting way to say it because there's so many other factors, but it gets down to that human factor. Would you yeah. agree, Jason? Uh, yeah, I definitely. I like that point. I think it change started from mindset change. So there, there's one slide I like to show to my students is uh, the, the name of wastewater treatment plant. So I have two pictures. One is wastewater treatment plant. Next is water resource recovery facility. And now we mm. all call water resource recovery facility. I told them it's not just a name change. Yeah. It's really the mindset change. Uh. And then we start to think, about wastewater in a different way. Although it's not going to be like that in the next few years, but we, we start to think. And, and slowly we incorporate those contents in, in the teaching materials about resource recovery. It, it's slowly moving from mindset change. So I, I like that point, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that mindset of change. How about you, Al, especially when you're looking at the business sector side? Yeah, you know, I come back to the, um, the two by two that we were talking about. And, you know, the emissions pathways that we're on and the degree of institutional agility that we experience. And what are the obstacles to changing those things? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think part of it is that we don't have that picture that is forcing us to do things differently, that forces us to look at the mirror as a, as a global community of people interested in water and see how challenging um, 2051 is gonna be for all of us. And I attribute that to a lot of different things, but at its root, part of it is an information problem. Right, is that it's hard to develop that picture when you don't have data mm -hmm. and information. The water sector remains pretty uh, data um, constrained. Different people will say different things. They'll say, well, we're data rich and information poor. The reality is that many parts of our sector don't even have sensors um, on critical pieces of their infrastructure because it's hard to train people to put those in and install them and trust them. Right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a gradual process of change that needs to take place in order to regularize a very significant increase in intent-based data collection to help contain uncertainty and create a better picture of what the future looks like on the different scenarios and pathways that we're on so that we can mobilize the um, intent and collaboration that we need to change. So You really touched on both the obstacles there and then the acceleration 
to find a way to get over those obstacles. I mean, you go back to information and empowering people with information and giving them you know, a real-time look. You mentioned sensors and things. What do you think could accelerate that change? Well, a big part of it, I think, is more and more uh, collaboration between organizations like WEF, the community of private sector consulting engineering firms, academia, and technology providers like Xylem. I mean, we've put such a big investment in the future of digital in this sector. Um, we have a new platform called Xylem View, which um, you can see on our website. Um, CDM Smith has something similar. Many of the organizations have put such a big highlight on this theme because information is so vital to unpacking uncertainty. And so I think a big part of what we're trying to do is to make sure that people understand that the implementation of sensing technologies, of analytics technologies, they're not scary or new. They're things that have been well applied in infrastructure stacks pretty much in every other sector of the economy. And when people say, well, new technology comes with risk, yeah. what I would say is look at the picture of the future and look at the risks that will materialize if we don't have better information. And at CDM Smith, you you know that's part of what you do and how you do it. Right. Yeah. And and I'd like to add upon that. I, you know, data rich, information poor is a resounding theme. But we've also experienced really, you know, the the combat of misinformation too. Right. And and again, over the past twenty months, I think you know we've struggled with that in, uh, as a concept. And certainly, science and engineering need mm -hmm. to to be at the forefront of communicating yeah. the information out. So it's no longer misinformation, you know, and again, there's some great things about technology. There's some challenging things about technology too, mm -hmm. and it really transforms opinions into facts in, in some cases, you know, and, and so to combat that, Al, great, you know, really leveraging technology to promote that data, to get it out there, and then to communicate it. Again, I really feel like getting that awareness and, and finding a path way to proactively communicate that um, and, and, you know, debunk a lot of the misinformation, the opinions, the, you know, and, and really we all like to feel comfortable in facts, mm -hmm. <laughs> but sometimes it's just being proactive enough to support that, that conversation that, again, we're all humans at the end of the day, so really recognizing that, collaborating, and leveraging data wherever possible to transform that into some type of information and decision-making, you know, and, that, and really empower everyone here to do that. And you trust that data. You know the power of data mm -hmm. and the power of science. And it has been questioned, as you just mentioned, in the last 20 months. So how do you reestablish trust when it comes to your data in the water industry? I think it starts with transparency, for sure, you know, and in reestablishing that trust, that openness, the, the clarity. We, we may not all have all the answers at that given time, but, but really leveraging it, as, as Al pointed out, and, and Jason as well, these are rooted in fundamental you know, processes that, that have been around for a long time. And so, um, so working with that data, leveraging the latest advancements, nice. you know, I mean, mm -hmm. machine learning AI sounds like a big black box and is scary to a lot of folks, but it's been around for a very long time. It could be used for good. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, it, and it, you know, has origins, you know, dating back to the 50s mm -hmm. in some cases, depending upon what you're talking about. So it, we're applying it in new ways. We have bigger data sets to work with. We have more um, uh, qualified folks to, to leverage data and have, get access to data in new ways that we didn't before with sensors and, and you know, just IoT in general. And we talked about 5G and who knows 
what could be 10G by you know the time we're at 2051. Mm -hmm. But but just really you know having that information and 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 translating it using some um, tried and true techniques. Yeah. I think is really important. And everybody's affected by water. I mean, everybody. That's just a, it's a known basic fact. What do you think, uh, Jason, as far as accelerating past those obstacles, especially well, through the eyes of your students? Yeah, I guess my thought is pretty simple and straightforward. Give us more money. Right? <laughs> hey. Hard to believe that's what a professor is thinking about. <laughs> uh, but in, in some ways, multiple ways, the professor doing research, they need funding. And mm -hmm. if there is a funding opportunity, they're going to really move towards that direction. So that's, uh, that's very. A significant impact on, on the research direction. And for students, when they graduate, they're, they're looking for jobs. So that's reality, mm -hmm. right? So it gets a good pay. I, I'm imagining in the future. So that's something I forgot to mention is in 30 years, if, um, if, if you walk into a wastewater treatment plant, a water, drinking water treatment plant, just like you walk into the headquarters of Amazon, Apple, I think that's yeah. going to be a really, really attraction to young students. I'm not talking about just appearance. Yeah. Of, we have all those new technology innovation talk about inside. It can be true. Absolutely. Right? And so, so really, really change the working environment and change the technology can change a lot of things. And that's another really accelerator to drive the students towards yeah. that direction. Very much so, very much so. Um, the conversation, uh, you know, globally with the Earthshot uh, um, um, coverage in the last few days over in, uh, in the UK and beyond, everyone really, sustainability is part of the vernacular. How do you see sustainability of water in 2051 compared to the sustainability we're seeing today? Or the methods of it? Al, do you want to talk about that from your... So I'll uh, maybe outline um, three very quick thoughts. The first is, again, it depends on the pathway we're on. So we've got to work mm -hmm. through those pathways. The second thing is I think there's some positive um, things um, that um, I can point to that are happening right now. I mentioned the uh, imagination challenge that's happening around net zero and water eliminating greenhouse gas emissions from the water sector by 2030, by 2050. Yeah. There are countries in the world that have already set 2030 targets for their water sector to become net zero. So by 2050, I do expect that we will be in a situation where the water sector is potentially energy positive and emissions negative nice. in a way that um, is significantly more sustainable. And the third example is I just want to congratulate the city of South Bend if they're here at WEFTEC or watching because a couple of weeks ago, something really historic happened. And that's that the Department of Justice amended their consent decree around combined sewer overflows to recognize the fact that their adaptive management approach that leverages artificial intelligence and sensing networks, they had so much confidence in its ability to reduce sewer overflows during heavy rainfall events that they allowed them to take a different path, leveraging data that saved that city $400 million relative to the wow. conventional um, approach that the city had been contemplating. To see those approaches leveraging data to drive better environmental sustainability at lower cost by better containing uncertainty using information and technology, that should give us all greater confidence that the institutions are proving more agile, right? That the regulatory organizations, whether that's the DOJ or the EPA or the State Department of Environmental Energy, are getting it. Right? They're saying data is there, we can use it, we can use it to be more resilient and more, more affordable. And so that's the thing that gives me the most confidence around this theme of institutional agility, that we're starting to get it, and we're starting to make changes that will put us in a better situation. It's an exciting future of sustainability. Amy? Yeah, so I guess I, I, I totally agree. I love 
using data in support of that. I, I think the other thing I'd bring up too is I, you know, we need to accelerate our focus on net zero water, uh, you know, net zero construction and buildings and, and, and you know, um, water reuse. The, the whole concept of recognizing that it's important that we, you know, address both the potable and uh, the, you know, the treatment and, and re, um, recharge a lot of the areas so we support the water scarcity issue. So I'm hopeful that energy water nexus, what we're seeing in renewables, mm -hmm. uh, renewable energies and what they're, offer, they're able to offer in support of this is really where we're heading, you know, and that, yeah. that they both are, are recognized um, in the same way. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. Jason? I'm just wondering if this world of wastewater is going to disappear ah. in 30 years. Because it's no longer be waste, right? I know right. Some, some places they start to use used water right. rather than wastewater. I think they, that makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, this is also relevant to the, the question we talk about infrastructure, because uh, water reuse, we do need infrastructure there. We can treat wastewater to a good quality, but there's no infrastructure to reuse. Uh -huh. You can do irrigation, it's there, but what about like urban reuse? They need a lot of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. so. That's pretty revelatory. That was excellent, Jason. Uh, to close us out today, um, before we leave, uh, you've all talked about some really incredible points from agility to the uncertainty and, and the management of it. Uh, what would you say are, are the top levers of change that we can leverage to get to these areas in 30 years? Why don't we just go right down from the end, Al? Sure, well, um, you know, Xylem has made a net zero commitment for 2050 and has called on the water sector to join us. And I think that's something that we can do and that we should do mm -hmm. to drive infrastructure renewal and put us on a better pathway. We're also very enthusiastic about regularizing digital, particularly as the infrastructure bill in the United States comes to fruition. The fact that infrastructure is so persistent means that we are so fortunate if this passes, to have the opportunity to set a groundwork for a better future, a more institutionally agile future, and one that's more climate resilient. But that means we need to use the resources, if they come, in a way that sets us better positioned for the future, not just kind of replicating what we've done in the past, mm -hmm. because those decisions that we make now will live with us through 2051. Very well said. Amy. I, I don't know if I could say it quite How as eloquently, it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I couldn't agree more. I really think we need to think outside the box. Again, I think, you know, recognizing we need to collaborate in different ways, leveraging tools to enable us to get to that future vision, but, um, but really trying to, to forge ahead a new pathway, take this opportunity. The infrastructure bill is a great example of that. And, and, and that, you know, because we've built it one way traditionally for, you know, hundreds of years, that this gives us an opportunity to, um, to really capitalize on the digital revolution and the capabilities there, as well as some of the challenges we're, you know, we're facing and, and that we know are potentially catastrophic. So mm -hmm. that resilient infrastructure goes beyond its, its digital resiliency at, at its core as well, and, and try and find ways to empower and, and um, provide that open access to that data to really drive towards that, that future. So I mean, Excellent. Thank you, Amy. Jason. Well, as a professor, I want students to have such a vision, but I don't want to teach them this vision. Mm. Right? So I, I guess so we, we don't want to say, tell the students that's, this is what's going to happen in 30 years. I, I think we want to deliver the message, both reality 
and a possible future, but let them to think. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to let students to evolve or develop their own vision. Yep. Hopefully it's aligned with the bigger picture, but it's okay. I mean, if they have some wide thinking, mm -hmm. but I do want to have them to think about the vision. Yeah. Well, I think it's so wonderful because the commonality between uh, the three of you and your vision uh, for 30 years from now, I spoke yesterday a bit on how, you know, I don't believe that anything's optional. I see things as opportunities. I think we've learned that the next 30 years of development and where we land in water in 2051 is not an option. It is an opportunity for everyone within WEF here at WEF Tech 2021, exhibiting people watching online, the three of you as leaders here on stage, uh, really gives us an opportunity, and one that we can be optimistic about, and realistic, but optimistic to make happen. Thank you three for making that happen. Al, Amy, and Jason, let's hear it for our panelists. Thank you so 